Amen. Well, you should have your Bibles open already to Acts chapter 6. As I said, we read the text earlier in the service just because this is about as big a bite of text as we're ever going to take, and yet it felt unnatural to pull the two apart. And when I say the two, I mean the two um, significant episodes that we find here in this passage. What we find here is the, the first martyr in the New Testament church in Stephen. We also find here the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. And both of those details are hugely significant. Both of those details are worthy of our attention. Anytime you're dealing with a large section of the text like this, the challenge, and it was a massive challenge for me this week, is to try and um, keep yourself from being bogged down in all the little details such that you miss what we're meant to see. What is it that Luke means for us to see here in the first martyr and in the longest sermon? To that end, that's what we're we're after today. We're going to break it into the two sections. And first, I want us to consider this the longest sermon in the book of Acts. What are we meant to learn from this? Standing at 1,014 words in the Greek text, I didn't read, I didn't count the words, I took that from a commentary. But it's 1,014 words in the Greek text. It's the longest sermon in the book of Acts. So we've been making our way through. And so far, you've probably noticed that from time to time, like some of the sermons in the book of Acts are summarized in a sentence. You know, and sometimes you have this, this huge significant moment and then Peter gets up and preaches and it's summarized in, in a little paragraph. Even in the significant events, I mean, think about the Pentecost experience. Peter preached that sermon at Pentecost. Did you know that this sermon here, though, recorded by uh, Luke, Stephen's sermon, it dwarfs even that sermon at Pentecost. And so before we even consider the words of this sermon, the sheer length of it notifies us that something significant is happening here. Luke means for us to look in and, and, and listen close. So what is so significant? And can I confess, I wasn't sure. So I, I sat down this week to study and I'm reading and I know like, Luke's not wasting word count here, right? All of the sermons are summarized. All of them are longer than what he's recorded. And he gave himself, you know, permission to shorten the other ones. Why did he leave this one at such a great length? Obviously, it was for a reason, but what's the reason? And I studied and I prayed. And, and to be honest with you, it took a very long time before I felt like, I, I think I see. And it was when I pulled back and considered the, the larger picture of the book of Acts that things began to come into uh, clarity. So remember... Uh, In Acts 1 verse 11, that's almost like our table of contents for the book of Acts. Jesus sends his apostles out and he tells them they're going to be his witnesses in where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's kind of the table of contents for the book of Acts. We see that progression. And what we find here is with the martyrdom of Stephen, the church is now moving away from Jerusalem and out into the world. And that is a very big deal. That's a very big deal. Jerusalem has long been the center of worship. In particular, the temple has been the center of the worship of God's people. But now, in in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, He has become the center. That's significant. He is the place where we meet with God. All true worship runs to and through Jesus. Now, we take that for granted because we've known this since we came to Christ. But remember, for these new believers... They have, most of them, spent a lifetime traveling to Jerusalem, traveling to the temple for worship. And now God is, he's sending them away. And this is a, this is a paradigm shift. This is a world-changing shift. And so what Luke is doing here 
is he's laying the theological groundwork for this massive change. In spite of its length, Stephen's sermon is focused and his argument is simple. Being the Baptist preacher that I am, I'm going I'm to break it down into three points because that's what we do. So we're going to take this, this sermon, we're going to put it in three points. Point one is this. Peter looks at his, or Stephen, looks out at his accusers and he, he reminds them that our story is a story of idolatry. Now before we go further, I want to explain why I'm using the language our story. I'm talking about us, our story. The Old Testament is our story. Did you know that? It is. It's our story. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul teaches us that we are all children of Abraham. We who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. By faith, we've become children of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them. And so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. In Romans 11, the Apostle Paul explains that we have been grafted into the family of God. So when we read the Old Testament, we're reading our story. You should know that. That's going to help you as you read your Bible. And unfortunately, what we find here is that our story is a story of idolatry. At the root of the argument of Stephen's accusers, it, they are accusing Stephen of subverting Moses and the law, and in particular, they're accusing Stephen of opposing the temple. That's, that's what's got them fired up. That's what's got them to this place. The temple has been the center of worship for God's people, as we mentioned. It was built in the, in the capital of the, the city of the promised land. This is the place. And it's honored and it's revered, and rightfully so. Right? God told them to build this temple. So it's not wrong that it's honored and revered, but what we see here is that these opponents had gone too far. Too far in their reverence and their honor. They had forgotten somewhere along the way that God is not limited to the temple They had forgotten that God was present with them long before the temple was ever built, and He will be present with them long after the temple is destroyed. One commentator summarizes, Stephen's assertion is that neither the tabernacle nor the temple was meant to be such an institutionalized feature in Israel's religion as to prohibit God's further redemptive activity or to halt the advance of God's plan for His people. So to put it simply, Stephen's opponents had made an idol of the temple. And this idolatry was pulling their hearts backwards when God was moving his people forwards. Stephen reminds us in this sermon that this isn't unique. He looks out at his opponents and he says, our fathers did exactly the same thing. In verse 39 of chapter 7, he says, our fathers refused to obey him. That's Moses. But they thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't even know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Stephen says, brothers, we're idol makers. This is, this is our story. This is what we do. We are back sliders, and it's happening again. Stephen's opponents were falling into this same pattern. God was so obviously moving his people forward, and yet their hearts were turning them backwards. So Stephen reminded them that God is bigger than the stone box in Jerusalem. Now the temple is good, but it only represents one chapter in our story. 
So much of our history, so much of the story of God moving in and amongst His people took place out there in the world, not here in Jerusalem. So in the very first verse of his sermon, Stephen notes, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. He's saying God was there in Mesopotamia. You know this, brothers. Let me remind you. And then he turns to the story of Joseph who was sold into slavery in Egypt. Joseph wasn't in the promised land. Joseph certainly wasn't in the temple. It didn't exist yet. And yet we read in verse 9, but God was with him. It says God was in Mesopotamia and God was there in Egypt. Then he turns to Moses. Moses is born in Egypt, but then he fled from Egypt to the land of Midian. And guess what? God was there too. Verse 30, Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire, in a bush. goes on to say, And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet. Why? For the place where you are standing is holy ground. Where was Moses standing? Was he standing in Jerusalem? Was he standing in the temple? No. No. Long before the temple, in the land of Midian on Mount Sinai, there was holy ground. And Stephen says, you know this, brothers. I'm just reminding you of things you know already. And he points them to the the tabernacle. And he says, remember God told us to build the tabernacle and it went with Joshua as they wandered in the wilderness. What's the lesson? While we wandered in the wilderness, God was there. And then he turns to the temple. And you notice he gives it a very small piece of his sermon. It's like, and yes, David wanted to build a place for God to dwell in Jerusalem. And God said, no, not you. Solomon's going to build it. And so David's son Solomon built the temple and God was there too. But contrary to what you believe, Stephen says, God didn't suddenly then limit himself to the temple. He wasn't suddenly bound by these four walls. No, God spoke clearly through the prophet Isaiah and declared, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? What's the point? Pretty simple. God is bigger than the temple. That's what he's saying. His presence stretches farther than this place. And if we attempt to limit him to the temple, if we make an idol in our hearts of the temple, then we in our hearts will miss out on what God is doing in our midst. We'll go backwards when God is so clearly moving us forwards. That's what Stephen is saying here. And maybe you're thinking, okay, well, the temple's long gone, so what does this matter? Here's what, here's what matters. You want a practical application? We can even make idols of our religious structures. You know, we say idolatry is when we take good things and we make them God things. And we can do that with our spouses. We can do that with our children. Turns out we can even do that with our religion. And that's what's happening here. God is bigger than your church. God was working in the world long before this denomination was ever formed. God has used people with different theology than ours to bring about national revivals. And in the same way that God was not contained in a stone box in Jerusalem, neither will He be restrained by the the boxes that you and I are going to be tempted to put Him in. And we will feel that temptation. And sometimes we can fall into this, we can become so ham-fisted 
as if we control God. You will do this. You will fit here. I have you figured out. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, I don't. He's bigger than the temple. Our story is a story of idolatry. Idolatry of wicked things. Idolatry of good things. And we need to learn from the mistakes of the past. And we need to resolve not to repeat them. Second, and I'm going to move much quicker now. Our story is a story of rebellion. So it's a story of idolatry and it's a story of rebellion. Stephen recounts our history and he highlights some of the the leaders, the redeemers, the prophets that God sent to us. People to lead us out of captivity. uh, People to sustain us in times of famine. People to speak on behalf of God. And yet, as Stephen points back to these familiar stories, and remember, his opponents, now maybe some of you are here today and as we read through kind of Israel's history there, you were, you were lost. You've never heard those stories. Well, that wasn't the case when the sermon was preached. He's speaking to the Jewish people, and they, they know these stories. These are familiar stories. And then I want you to notice how he so uh, subtly and masterfully weaves in these reminders that we actually hated those deliverers when they were with us. Our fathers consistently opposed the leaders that God sent And so he tells us in the beginning, he says, God sent Joseph to save his people from famine. He's like, but do you remember what our fathers did to Joseph? So, by the way, remember he he was talking about Abraham and he talked about Isaac and and Isaac fathered Jacob and, and Jacob fathered the patriarchs. And then notice the very first thing he says about the patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. So that's that's what our fathers did. But then God rose up Moses. Well, maybe we treated Moses better. No. God gave us Moses to lead us out of Egypt, but we rejected him too. Look at verse 25 of chapter 7. Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. He goes on in verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He goes on to say, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Stephen's saying, listen, you love Moses now, but remember that our fathers opposed him at every turn. Remember, that's our story. As God's plan advanced time and time again, we dug in our heels And we resisted that progress. We killed the prophets. We fought to preserve the world that we'd grown comfortable in. And you see what he's doing here. He's revealing a pattern. He's setting the stage for his conclusion. He's he's pointing them back to all these familiar stories, but he's highlighting some of the details that we we whitewash over. Some of the details that we conveniently forget. So our story is a story of rebellion, brothers. We always rejected the redeemers that God sent. And then he comes in and he says, and in the same way that our fathers rejected Moses, this one who led us out, this one who who God sent to be the redeemer, the leader, he says, this Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. He says, this Moses, he told us that one was coming who would be like him. And remember the, the opponents What's their big quarrel with Stephen? They think that he's opposed to Moses. They think he's trying to undermine Moses and the law. They think he's trying to to undermine the temple. 
And these folks have rejected Jesus. So Stephen leans in and he tells them the history. He tells them the story. And he tells them some of the tricky things that they've been missing about the story. But then he leans in with this piece that really sets them ablaze. He says, and by the way, so our story is a story of idolatry. And our story is a story of rebellion. But then here's the beautiful part, brothers. Our story is the story of Jesus. You, you've missed it. But you've got to see this. It's the story of Jesus. And so he says in verse 51, and I want you to notice in verse 51, he shifts his language. Because up until this point in his sermon, he's been using this language of, uh, our, of, of my brothers, our, our fathers, our race, our people. He's, he's lumping himself in, right? He's saying, hey, this is us. This is us, guys. But here he separates himself. And he says, no, now this is you. You listen. You, looking at verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels, and yet you didn't keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were repentant? No. They were enraged. They ground their teeth at him just like their fathers had done. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. And in that moment, he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, he concludes his sermon with this powerful word, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He turns to his, his brothers, these, these opponents who have rejected Christ. And he says, listen, in the same way that our fathers rejected Moses, This Jesus, He is the prophet like Moses. The one that that Moses said was coming. And anyone who rejects Him is no different than our fathers who rejected Moses in the wilderness. God is moving us forward. And anyone who refuses to follow because they've made an idol of the temple is no different than those who refuse to follow in the wilderness because they had made an idol of the calf and wanted to go back to Egypt. You pretend, he says, that you're defending Moses and the law. But you're actually aligning yourselves with those who opposed Moses and broke the law. Don't you see it? Jesus is the one that Moses said would come. And then he says, and I see him now in the heavens the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That quotation, uh, actually, does anyone recognize that quotation? It comes from one of the most significant Old Testament prophecies. It comes from, and we preached through it about two years ago, Daniel 7. He quotes from Daniel 7 where Daniel sees this vision of, well, I'll read it. Daniel says, In verse 13, 14 of chapter 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. He was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel in this vision says, I saw one like a son of man. I saw a man. He was in heaven with the ancient of days with God. But to this man was given dominion and glory. The peoples are worshiping this man. And, and Stephen picks up that vision and he says, that one that, 
that Daniel saw, that one that Moses looked forward to, he has come. His name is Jesus. And brothers, you missed him. You rejected him. And you need to repent. Stephen could not have been any clearer. Jesus is the Son of Man. He is God. Jesus reigns. Jesus stands vindicated in heaven. Anyone who has rejected Jesus has rejected God Himself. And His opponents understood this message loud and clear. They'd heard enough. So we read in verse 57. You can just picture this scene. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at Him. It's almost like children, but they just, they're like, we're not going to listen to another word of this nonsense. They ran at him, and then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. Now, history indicates that when these stonings happened in Jerusalem, they most likely would have brought him out of the city, and they would have thrown him over the rock of execution. The rock of execution was about, supposed to be twice the height of a man, and they would have thrown him head first to try to break his neck. Try and paralyze him. Now, Stephen was not incapacitated by this fall because the text says he, was, he stood up and then he kneeled at the end. And yet they hurled jagged stones at Stephen. And we read in verse 9, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And so concludes the longest sermon in the book of Acts with the first martyrdom of the New Testament church. It leads to our final question. What do we learn from the first martyr? Now there are three lessons here, but we're only going to look at two of them because uh, the third we're going to devote an entire sermon to next week. Our brother Matt's going to talk about the, uh, what, what persecution produces, the results of persecution. Some pretty amazing things were happening even in this terribly bleak scene. But we're going to deal with that next week because we've got enough ground to cover today. I want to highlight these two lessons. What do we see here? First, Luke wants us to see that if we live like Jesus, we will suffer like Jesus. So if you've been tracking with us, paying attention, you'll know that Luke has been hammering home this lesson. I feel it as a preacher. You know, you turn to, the, to what's next and you think, okay, we're hitting the note of persecution again. Oh, we're hitting it again. Oh, we're hitting it again. Why, why this repetition? Because Luke understands that this is the lesson. This, the cost of discipleship is a lesson that we are going to be slow to learn and quick to forget. We need to hear it. In this passage, we have the privilege of meeting Stephen. Now, technically speaking, we met Stephen last Sunday. Uh, in the beginning of Acts chapter 6, Stephen was one of the seven that was set apart to care for the widows in the church. So we met Stephen. But here in this passage, we really come to know him. He's a pretty remarkable guy. We, so we know he's got administrative skills because he was set apart for this task. But here we see that he's also a passionate preacher, a fiery preacher. The text tells us in chapter 6 as well that he was going out and, and he was working signs and wonders. So God is working through this, this brother in a mighty way. We learn that uh, Stephen is gentle and lowly, so much so that the church set him apart to care for their grandmas, right? He's, he's one of those guys. Like, I picked this guy to care for my grandma. We also learn in the text that he is fierce and courageous, so much that he could stand before this crowd and look them in the eyes and, and say, you stiff-necked people, right? In short, 
Stephen sounds an awful lot like a man who looked like Jesus. And the devil hates men and women who look like Jesus. If I could just pause there and a bit of application. The devil hates men and women who look like Jesus. He opposes men and women who look like Jesus. You know, we're, we're in the beginning of our new year and we're setting out to grow in holiness. You know, and that's always our goal, but there's, there's something about January where we look at what's happened and we're setting goals for what's ahead and it's really hard. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but some of us have, have already failed on our goals. You know, like I want to get into the Word of God regularly. And, and you, you're now a week and a half from the last time you opened the book. I want to be faithful in prayer. And yet every time you sit down, you're distracted in prayer. I want to be a better husband, a better wife. I want, I want to be pure. I want to turn from that sin. I want to walk righteously. And, and we stumble and we fall. And so many times we chalk that up to, I'm not disciplined. I just, I just need more discipline. I'm not disciplined enough. Well, hey, there's not a person in this room who couldn't grow in discipline, right? Let's grow in discipline. But could I suggest to you today that there's something deeper than our discipline? It's not just lack of discipline that gets me out of the Word of God, that gets me distracted in prayer, that gets me backsliding into sin, that gets me selfish towards my spouse. It's not just a lack of discipline. It's a spiritual fight. It's spiritual warfare. And there is an enemy who does not want you to be in the Word, and he doesn't want you in prayer, and he doesn't want you to be a good spouse, and he doesn't want you growing in holiness, and he wants you trapped in that sin, and he wants to keep you bound. He doesn't want you to look like Stephen. He doesn't want you looking like Jesus. And we just need to recognize that lest we just fall back and say, well, I guess I'm just not a disciplined person. No. It runs deeper. Growing in holiness is hard spiritual work. And so here we see Stephen and he's looking like Jesus. And as we learn, when you look like Jesus, you suffer like Jesus. This opposition arose against him in the city. And so we read that Stephen's opponents tried to trap him in debates, tried to make him look like a fool. You know, they did the same thing with the apostles. If you remember when they arrested Peter and Peter and John, they'd bring them before the, the smartest religious leaders, you know, the, the spokesmen, and they tried to debate them down, tried to make them look like fools. They're doing the same thing with Stephen, and they're having the same frustrating results because Stephen is, is filled with the Spirit and with wisdom, and, and somehow he's able, to, he's able to counteract all their attacks in the debate. It's because Jesus promised that in these moments he would give us the words to speak and it's happening again. This is an interesting detail. I want to highlight it. One of the people who would have been debating Stephen almost certainly was Saul of Tarsus. We see him here in the story. Saul of Tarsus. You know who that is? He's the one that we know now as the Apostle Paul. Arguably the most brilliant mind of the ancient Near Eastern world. And yet even he, with, with all of his buddies, he, he couldn't bring down Stephen because God was speaking through Stephen and giving him wisdom. And so they had to turn to underhanded tactics to accomplish their goal. They started lying about Stephen. They stirred up a mob against Stephen. They brought in a bunch of false witnesses to testify against Stephen because persecution doesn't play fair. That's a pattern that carries on even in today, doesn't it? Persecution doesn't play fair. They used all the same tricks against Stephen that they used against Jesus. And Luke means for us to see that. That as we're following this story with Stephen, it should in your mind be triggering memories of what they did to Jesus. Because that's the point. Stephen is following in Jesus' footsteps. Just like Jesus said we would. In John 15, 20, 
Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so they did. And Stephen became the first martyr of the New Testament church. And many followed quickly after him. Eleven of the twelve apostles were martyred. And the twelfth, John, they tried, to, they tried to kill John. And they wound up sending him to prison in Patmos. And he died in prison. Since those early days, millions of our brothers and sisters have followed in the steps of Jesus. We've been torches in Nero's garden. We've been fodder for the lions in the Colosseum. We've starved to death in prisons, beheaded, stoned, hung upside down on crosses. This is our story. It's not a story that's over. It feels like it's over for us here in North America, but it's not over. It persists today. I got an email um, just this past week from one of our missions partners, uh, Pastor Paul, who is ministering in Southeast Asia. And uh, I, wish that I, I wish that you could meet him. Um, Amanda and I and Ron and Matt, we had the privilege of going and spending time and ministering with, with Paul and his family, meeting his church, a bunch of people just like you, a bunch of people just like you, meeting the pastors that he's training up, um, seeing their congregations, some of them tiny, some of them big, ministering to Sikh communities, ministering over, like it. Wonderful group of people. He wrote and he said, I asked for prayer requests, and he said, in September and October, our churches endured an increased season of persecution. Mobs actually attacked several churches, and services were disrupted, and pastors were threatened. And in Southeast Asia, the, the cultural climate is getting pretty getting pretty heated. And so this is becoming a part, of, a part of their life, a reality for those worshipers. Uh, can you imagine? It was a gathering just like this. A mob breaking in, hurting people, threatening the pastor, saying they're going to kill the pastor if you keep this up. This is happening today with our partners that we're corresponding with, praying with on a daily basis. This is the norm. Jesus said it would be this way. Our reality here is the exception, not the rule. If we live like Jesus... We will suffer like Jesus. And Luke wants us to see that. But now I want to turn to our last point as we conclude. Because there's this beautiful note of hope in this story. Even this story that ends with our brother being um, killed as they threw stones at him. We're reminded that though if we live like Jesus, we will suffer like Jesus. As we suffer for Jesus, he stands with us. He stands with us. So from the beginning of this story with Stephen all the way to the end, you see these, these subtle reminders that Luke includes for us. Reminders that Luke, or that Stephen, sorry, was never, ever alone. So as they're debating him and trying to make him look like a fool, the Spirit is filling him. We're, we're told he's full with the Spirit. And it's so much so, in fact, that as, as they bring him in and they're about to, they're about to, begin their inquisition, they look at his face, and remember what the text says? And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, I don't know what that means. Was he just very peaceful? Or was he shiny? I kind of think he was shiny, because remember, they're accusing him of undermining Moses. Well, do you remember the story of when Moses met with God and he came back down? And they said, Moses, you're scaring us. Your face is shiny, because he's been with God. I'm inclined to think that that's exactly what's happening here. 
This man who they're accusing of undermining Moses is like Moses, reflecting the glory of God to his people. I don't know. We can't speculate. I do know this. Whatever it means that he had the face of an angel, we can say for certain that God was visibly aligning himself and giving his blessing to this servant. He was with Stephen. And as they drag Stephen out, and I assume Stephen's feeling the kind of fear that we would feel as we're preparing to have a painful, awful death, Stephen looks up, and what does he see? He sees Jesus standing, watching, affirming, I'm with you. As he's being stoned, as his life is slipping away, and he can feel that his life is slipping away, what does he say? He cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Luke's reminding us that when we suffer for Jesus, we never suffer alone. He stands with us. Now on the contrary, Jesus knows what it's like to suffer alone. He was the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was rejected. He was despised. His his closest followers turned from him in his moment of need. Peter denied that he even knew the man. As Jesus hung on the cross, as He bore all of the sin of the world, and and in His humanity bore the wrath of God against sin, He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus knows what it is to suffer alone, and He did suffer alone so that everyone who followed after Him would never have to suffer alone. So that each and every one of us, as we take up the cross and we follow Jesus, we can say, He will never leave us or forsake us. And when the earthly jury is crying out for our heads like they were here with Stephen, Jesus is standing as our advocate in the only court that matters. And Luke wants us to see that. Oh, that we would see that and remember that. And we wonder, will we have what it takes in those moments? I don't know if I have what it takes, but I know that Jesus does, and He is with me. And so I'm going to look to Him. I'm going to keep my eyes locked on Him, whatever comes. Jesus taught us, so have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Think about that. Jesus says, he's watching. And in in this scene, we see Jesus is here. He's standing, he's watching. He's like, Stephen, I stand for you. You know, they're calling you guilty. They're accusing you of guilty, worthy of death. I'm standing here in the heavenly courtroom. You're innocent, and I'm with you. Jesus is watching. But in the same way, Jesus watches when we deny him. Jesus watches when we count the cost and we say, too hard, too costly, too scary. I'm going to align myself with with these folks. And he says, if you deny me, then in that courtroom, in the courtroom that matters, I'll deny you. It's frightening. G. Campbell Morgan makes this helpful observation. No hurricane of persecution ever creates martyrs. It reveals them. I think that is so helpful. This storm of persecution didn't make Stephen. It simply exposed who Stephen already was. See, a martyr, you know, Sometimes we think a martyr is some, is some rare, super-Christian. 
No, a martyr is simply a Christian who meant what they said when they went through the waters of baptism. A martyr is simply a Christian who meant what they said when they took up their cross and said, I'm following Jesus. And the hurricane of persecution didn't make them. It simply exposed what was already there. And so if you're like me, you wonder, well, what will the hurricane reveal in me? If and when that day comes, and that wave of persecution comes my way, that hurricane hits me, what will be revealed? And I think that there's actually a simple pushback on that question. Let me just ask, if you want to know what the hurricane will reveal, let me ask, what did the gentle breeze reveal? If you're wondering, when when they're threatening my life, what will be revealed? Let me just ask, when you were afraid to look silly in front of your coworker, what did that reveal? Did you hide your faith from your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers? Are you embarrassed about Jesus? Embarrassed by his word? Do you distance yourself from him when the world around you becomes hostile? Are you more concerned with pleasing the crowd than you are with pleasing him? You look at your social media. Who, who are you pandering to? Whose, whose affirmation do you really want? Who are you looking for to please, to honor, to revere? What will the hurricane reveal? Probably the same thing that the gentle breeze reveals. And I think that that brings us, by way of application, to a place of decision. And that's where we should have began when we said we were following Jesus beginning at the place of decision. Will I take up my cross to follow Him, or won't I? That's always been the call. That's always been the cost. Is He worth more to me than everything? Worth more than this relationship? Worth more than this pet sin? Worth more than this pride? Worth more than this this love of the world, worth more than my love of possessions, my love of comfort, my love of my freedom. Is he worth it all? That's the question. And that was always the question. And by God's grace, with the help of his spirit, he enables us to say yes. In my flesh, I can't say yes. I can't do it. In my own strength, I cannot do it. My flesh wants to be comfortable, wants to be safe, wants to be well, wants to be liked, wants to be celebrated. But by the power of the Spirit, I can turn and I can say, no, I'm, I'm willing to let all of this go. I want Jesus. See, our story is a story of, of idolatry and rebellion. That's not unique to you. That is our story of hearts that are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. And yet, God sent His Son to redeem us to redeem people like you and me. People like these persecutors who stoned Stephen. I mean, not to get too far ahead, but Saul, who became the the most powerful preacher that the church has ever seen apart from Jesus. The Apostle Paul, he stood there. They laid down their cloaks so that the blood wouldn't splatter on their clothes. And Saul said, I'll watch your coats. And he looked on as they murdered Stephen. But God sent his son to save people like Saul. People like us. And so we ask, who will we align with? Do we align with the crowd? Or do we align with the prophet like Moses? The Son of Man. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. 
the suffering servant who came to set us free. Who are we aligned with? So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is a fearful word. It's a needed word. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, we love you. And we thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that you speak to us. Lord, And we acknowledge that your word is infallible and perfect. um, But this messenger is not. And so, Lord, if I've gotten in the way of your truth, if I've impeded anything, um, distorted anything, gotten the emphasis wrong, I thank you that by your spirit, you'll help us to hear the sermon that we need to hear. God, I thank you that in the midst of this weighty reminder, Lord, that we are also reminded that, that Stephen could look through his suffering to the joy that was set before him, that he could see Jesus, that you gave him peace in the storm and that you brought him home. And Lord, remind us of that, that Lord, as we let good and kindred go, this mortal life also and the body they may kill, your truth abideth still and your kingdom is forever. Help us to remember these truths, Lord. Press them deep into our hearts. God, I pray that we would be people who walk through the hard valleys, Lord, through the storm, but with the joy of the Lord. Lord, I pray that you'd preserve our witness. God, I pray that you would make us faithful, find us faithful. Lord, I pray that you would remind all of those maybe here today who have denied you, those who feel a little bit like like Saul, like they've stood idly by while you were defamed and slandered, like they hid, like they feel like Peter. They lied about being associated with you. They hid from from you. God, I pray that you would remind them that there is mercy for them. Lord, and there's restoration. If they look to Christ, Lord, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Press that truth deep into our hearts. And God, I pray that if we are to move into a season like this, Lord, we don't know what the future holds But I pray that we would remember that, Lord, even when it feels like we're losing, Lord, this battle's already been won. And so I thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've accomplished. And we look forward to the day when your kingdom will finally be established in this world. And we will see you as you are. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Until that day, God help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Worship team, would you lead us?